You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 3rd of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. In the US, 14 states brace for Super Tuesday and vote on who they want the next Democratic presidential nominee to be. My guests Terry Stiasny and Carol Walker will discuss that and the day's other news, including the ongoing chaos at the Home Office here in the UK, and why the Australian Associated Press is closing up to 85 years in operation. Also ahead, the countdown has begun. Our first look ahead on what to expect from this year's Eurovision Song Contest. There's also some classic Eurovision fare, ranging from the Metallica-esque beats of the Georgian act to a Serbian version of the Pussycat Dolls. I am Marcus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined in the studio by the political journalist and author Terry Stiasny and by Carol Walker, who's a political analyst and a former BBC political correspondent. Welcome both to the show. We start in the United States, where millions of voters go to the polls today to cast their ballots on who the next Democratic presidential nominee should be. A total of 14 states are voting today. Monaco's US election correspondent Thomas Lewis explains what exactly is Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday is always a landmark moment in a presidential election cycle, but this year's votes feel particularly consequential, largely because of just how quickly events in the days following the South Carolina primary on Saturday and Joe Biden's overwhelming victory there have moved. 14 states hold their primaries today and what each candidate is vying for in each of them is delegates. Those representatives that are handed out to candidates depending on how well they do at the ballot box in each state. The candidate with the largest number of delegates at the end of the primary process will become the party's presidential nominee at the Democratic National Convention in July. From there, he or she will face Donald Trump in November's election. Thank you, Thomas. We'll have more from him a little later in the programme, but now let's turn to our panel in the studio. Carol, if I may start with you first, who do you think will win Super Tuesday? Well, there's clearly a crucial night and at the moment uh, Joe Biden seems to be gaining a lot of momentum after a campaign that seems to be floundering. But of course you can't write off um, Bernie Sanders who has got that great team of activists, a lot of young activists who are going out there trying to get the vote out for him. It does appear to be a race between these two at the moment. And Joe Biden will undoubtedly have been boosted by the fact that two of the contenders who've now dropped out, uh, Amy Klobuchar and also Pete Buttigieg, have both given their backing to Joe Biden. But it seems very much as though their reasons for doing so are simply because they want to try to prevent 
prevent Bernie Sanders getting the Democratic nomination. Um, clearly, this race is incredibly tight. I think what is extraordinary is that we've reached this stage after all these months after what was a huge field. And it looks as though it's going to be a race between two late 70-year-olds um, with question marks over both of them um, as to whether they are really going to be able to take on and defeat Donald Trump. Terry, Joe Biden has indeed received fresh endorsements from Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. Will that impact voters? I think he will hope that uh, it's a sign that uh, the momentum is is more going moving more towards the centre, if you like. I mean, it, I, you've got to bear in mind uh, the areas. Everybody's thinking about which states they can win. I mean, one of Amy Klobuchar's main claims was that she was com- trying to tell voters that she was the kind of person, candidate, who could win the Midwestern states, places like Michigan, places like Wisconsin, which have flipped between um, Obama and Trump. So looking more for, you know, that swing vote that ultimately is what it will come down to uh, in November um, and trying to, you know, get a, a different, you know, geographical spread. I mean, as Carol says, I think one of the real shames in this contest so far is that as as it has gone on, as the field has narrowed, uh, the candidates who are left have become older and, and less diverse. And I think uh, particularly when you're looking to what might be able to to win the general of the presidential election in November, that's something that the Democrats really ought to keep in mind. Mm. Let's look at some of the other candidates now. For example, Elizabeth Warren. Carol, how strong is her position now? Would it be about time for her to drop out from the race already? She appears to have decided to cling on for now at least, but it has to be said that she is by this stage, something of an outsider. I think what's significant when you've seen these uh, two contenders backing Joe Biden is I think that there was always a concern that uh, amongst those more moderates within the democratic movement um, that their vote could be split between many different candidates and that that would allow Bernie Sanders to get the democratic nomination. Um, I think that there may well now after tonight's results come through, Elizabeth Warren could find herself under pressure to uh, under pressure to drop out following the lead of those other two. Um, but I think there is then a problem that you have these two older white male candidates. Um, we know that Joe Biden has quite a big following amongst uh, black and ethnic voters, uh, and curiously, that Bernie Sanders has a big following amongst the young. But um, where are the women in all of this? And when you look at the choice that ultimately voters will face, it's looking increasingly as though they will have uh, a choice when it comes to who their next president is going to be between two white men in their 70s. Exactly. I think it's interesting that, you know, often in politics you get people fighting the last campaign. And and on paper you look at Elizabeth Warren and think, well, why is she not the more popular candidate? She's got, you know, huge experience in academia, in law, in all sorts of things. She's intelligent. She has plans for things to do. And maybe people just think that is too much like Hillary Clinton. That is a kind of candidate that we had last time. And that's the kind of, you know, we're not going to go with that again, the the, the smart woman. And also we haven't mentioned yet uh, Michael Bloomberg, who is coming into this race at a late stage, hoping that... A huge throwing a huge amount of money and at this and a huge amount of advertising uh, and you know his experience as mayor of New York, which again you know represents one very small uh, part of the country, is going to be enough to get him onto onto the ballot. But 
so far, not much sign of that. But, you know, it's interesting to see if that tactic may actually, you know, how many delegates, if any, that will get him. Well, there's been a fair bit of hype around uh, Bernie Sanders. What do you think are his main flaws as a candidate? Well, I think in terms of the wider American electorate, there is just that sense that he is a very radical left-wing socialist and a lot of American voters still shy away from that taunt. And I think what's fascinating is that the Trump camp would clearly be delighted to come up against Bernie Sanders because I think that they would pace him, uh, they would paint him as this left-wing revolutionary, that he'd put up taxes, that he would, um, he would Im- impose a much bigger state on the American people. The trouble Bernie Sanders has now, really, I think he's got this uh, label almost that he's the Jeremy Corbyn of American politics. Um, Is he going to be seen as just too much of a radical, just too much of a socialist, certainly to win voters away from Donald Trump. And I think what you have to remember is that in the United States, that word socialist has rather different connotations than it does, for example, here in the UK. And it's still seen in some sections of society as a rather dangerous revolutionary and somebody who's going to try and seize control of huge amounts of power to the state. And indeed, uh, we'll have to put up taxes by a huge amount in order to deliver the sort of welfare and the sort of uh, health care plans that he has set out during the campaign. And what's also interesting is that uh, earlier there were reports that US officials had told Bernie Sanders that Russia is attempting to help his campaign as part of an effort to interfere with the election. Uh, absolutely. And this is an absolute handing it on a platter to Donald Trump, who's absolutely delighted to point this up uh, at every opportunity as someone who at the last election, of course, faced his own accusations that uh, he'd got the Russians helping him on his side. So there is a certain amount of pots calling kettle black when it comes to that particular aspect. But of course, it all feeds into that, that, uh, that image which... Sanders's opponents can seize upon that he's this left-wing dangerous revolutionary. Terry, just before we, we move on, one thing obviously is to be able to win this nomination, but if you look at look at who we see at the moment leading the Democratic race, do you think any of these candidates can actually beat Donald Trump? What's your opinion? Uh, I think it is going to probably be very difficult for people to do that. I mean, you know, Trump sort of things haven't stuck with him. You know, the impeachment hasn't, you know, he managed to get through that and survive. He managed to keep uh, the Republicans on the side, you know. I mean, despite every blunder and faux pas and everything he makes, he he's, he's still there. Um, and that is one of the risks that neither, and, and also another risk is that uh, if there's no clear outcome from Super Tuesday, if nobody has a majority of delegates, then we could end up, you know, heading towards a brokered convention, something where where there is no clear candidate until very late on in the year. And and the risk of that is the Democrats infighting amongst each other, and you know that infighting is still, you know, people within their own party saying, look, this is the reason the other guy shouldn't be the presidential candidate. And that, again, gives Trump more of a clear run-up in, in, in the lead-up to November. Terry Stiosny and Carol Walker there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Carlo Tarabello with some of the other stories we've been following today.
Thanks, Marcus. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu looks set to win the country general election, but is expected to fall just short of a governing majority. It is Israel's third national ballot in less than a year, and a win for Netanyahu suggests that months of political deadlock could be drawing to a close. Japan's Olympic minister Seiko Hashimoto says his country's contract with the International Olympic Committee allows it to postpone the Tokyo Games until the end of the year. The Games are due to begin in July, but alternative plans are being drawn up because of the coronavirus outbreak. And finally, most countries have now submitted their entries for this year's Eurovision Song Contest, which will take place in Rotterdam between the 12th and the 16th of May. And we'll have more on this year's Song Contest a little later on today's programme. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Carlotta. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Terry Stiasny and Carol Walker. Let's turn to the UK, where Home Secretary Priti Patel is facing a Cabinet Office inquiry over bullying claims. Carol, could you first recap these allegations? What do we know so far? Well, the key thing is that Sir Philip Ruttenham, who was the most senior civil servant in the Home Office and a man who's been at the top tier of the civil service for many, many years now, uh, has left the post, walked out with some pretty inflammatory accusations of bullying against the Home Secretary Priti Patel. Uh, He said there was shouting, that there was bullying, um, that more junior members of staff were treated in a way that was uh, simply not acceptable. For such a senior civil servant to go on the record and make these sorts of comments is quite extraordinary. And he went on to say that although Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, had denied that she had uh, been leaking stories about him and about the behaviour of senior civil servants to the newspapers, he, Sir Philip, simply did not believe her. Uh, And I think that it really does underline that things have reached a pretty serious state when you've got such a senior civil servant. And these are normally people who operate behind the scenes. These are the Sir Humphreys of our political system. To have him going on that record in that way is pretty explosive. But it has to be said that Priti Patel has got the Prime Minister and an awful lot of her own party behind her, for now at least. Boris Johnson's government doesn't seem to be afraid to do things differently. Terry, do you think something like this can increase tensions within different government departments, such as the Home Office? I mean, the thing about the Home Office is the Home Office has always been a notoriously difficult department to run. That is not a new thing. I mean, there was uh, one Home Secretary, John Reid, back in the Labour government, who famously said it's not fit for purpose. Then Gordon Brown took the decision to split it up because it was such an unwieldy, huge department. He split it up into Home Office and then a separate Justice Department. So, you know, the idea that the Home Office is, is difficult to run has been around for a long time. I mean, you look at, you know, Theresa May, who was one of the few Home Secretaries who went on to become prime minister. Even she had problems with you know, issues like immigration, issues like Windrush, for example. Because of the size of it, it's always difficult. Um, but there, you ha- even if you want to come in and want to change things. So, you know, Boris Johnson's government is making a lot of noises about shaking things up. His advisor, Dominic Cummings, when he was in the education department, you know, they he and his minister called the civil service the blob and they wanted to, you know, get people out of their rut of doing things in a particular way. But what the civil servants would point out is say, well, you know, the, the reason there's a rut, the reason there's a way of doing things is because there are laws and there are rules and there are things, there are certain things that have to be done in certain ways. So inevitably, 
inevitably those two approaches are likely to come into conflict with one another. I mean, the problem for Pretty Patel, one of them, we if you look at what the ministerial code says as to how you should behave towards your civil servants, it says ministers should be professional in their working relationships with the civil service and treat all those with whom they come into come into contact with consideration and respect. Now that's quite sort of broadly defined. So if it's said that you haven't treated them with consideration and respect, then your position is quite difficult. Is this is this spat the Priti Patel inquiry having a big impact on how well the Home Office can get its job done? How how damaging is this? Well, I think it is very difficult when you've got a department which, as Terry has pointed out, uh, has always been a very difficult, a potentially accident-prone department. Just at the moment, they're trying to implement a new immigration system that's supposed to be in place before the end of the year. They're going to have to oversee what happens at the borders if, as seems quite possible, um, there isn't a trade agreement or even if there is a trade agreement. Agreement. It could still, it is still likely to lead to big changes at the borders. Uh, if we look at what's happening with coronavirus, the precautions and the repercussions of that are very likely to require an input from the Home Office. What you need is a Home Secretary and a team that are really focused on dealing with these huge and very pressing problems rather than a, a temporary civil, uh, senior civil servant acting up in the role and a Home Secretary who's already facing questions about how she's dealt with members of staff. Uh, I think what is fascinating is that at the moment, and we saw in the Commons yesterday, an awful lot of the, uh, especially the more Brexiteer supporting Conservative MPs were right in there behind Pretty Patel and suggesting that a lot of these allegations against her were fired up by the fact that she's a staunch Brexiteer and she's a woman. Um, but I think this inquiry will be carried out by uh, an impartial senior civil servant himself. Uh, and I think that the findings of that um, could very well still make life very difficult indeed for Pretty Patel. You both have been following British politics for 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 a rather long time. I wonder if you might be able to offer some kind of leadership advice to ministers. How should they deal with their respective offices? How to get the best results? Uh, I think people need to be able to have sort of open conversations that don't turn into shouting and swearing. I think that's probably good management advice, whatever, you know, whether you work in a newsroom, whether you work in uh, any other form of professional body. Advisors have to be, civil servants have to be able to tell ministers what they see, how they see it. And they need to, you know, not be yelled at for that. But at the same time, they probably sometimes do need to be pushed out of their comfort zone and said, well, look, you know, times are changing, certain circumstances are changing, and we need to think of different ways of doing things. And uh, it's interesting when, you know, political advisors come in and say, we want to shake everything up. But, you know, that is, it takes time and it takes building relationships of trust. Carol, what to do and what not to do? Well, I think the key thing is that civil servants very often do know and understand the policies that they are working on and can offer some incredibly useful uh, advice, but there is a case that where you could say that some of them are perhaps a little set in their ways and not prepared to look at different ways of doing things. I know from talking to Pretty Patel that she felt that the civil service was out to block her from the moment that she arrived because they, uh, as she saw it, they were 
institutionally opposed to Brexit, that they didn't like being bossed around by somebody like Priti Patel. Um, I do think that she may not be the most diplomatic of uh, politicians to work for. So I think perhaps there are some lessons that can be learned on both sides there. And let's continue to Australia next. The country's national news agency, the Australian Associated Press, has announced it is closing after 85 years. A decline in subscribers and free distribution of news content on digital platforms are blamed for the closure. Terry, how big of a loss is this? Um, I think it's always really sad when you lose uh, services that are providing basic factual reporting. I think one of the problems, you know, there's obviously problems with all sorts of news organisations at the moment, uh, financial and otherwise, but one of the risks is that what you lose when you lose these kind of services is facts. It's reporting basic things like court cases, local politics, what goes on in a local council, all of those things where, you know, people start to notice that there might be an issue with uh, the justice system. There might be an issue with local things that people care about, like their drains. And if you lose that at the expense of opinion, which you can get everywhere pretty much for free, uh, then you're losing something quite valuable in terms of news and you are possibly then undermining people's trust in the news that they are getting. I think it's clearly uh, a worrying sign. Uh, The Australian Associated Press was used by newspapers, including The Guardian and The Mail and so on, and they make this point that they cover the facts, that they're not there to give uh, analysis or their own interpretation of events. And I think they they have made it clear that it is uh, the fact that, that the media has been torn apart by the digital age, that we know that um, almost half of young people now turn to social media to get their news. Uh, they go to places like Google and Facebook and, and see what their friends are sharing and so on. That's all very well, but somebody has got to be there on the ground establishing the facts, reporting at the sharp end for that to be shared accurately. And I think that's where you get this great danger of fake news, the difficulty of differentiating between fake news and rumour and what is actually happening. And when you see an institution like this news agency, which was going out and establishing what was actually happening on the ground. When you see companies like that, uh, services like that being closed down, I I think that is a worrying sign. Do you think we need to realise, learn to understand the value of news agencies? I'm just thinking about an example from my home country of Finland, for example, where the national news agency was about to go bankrupt and the Finnish government gave some financial funding. Yes, I mean, it's, I think it's a difficult question asking governments to support that. Maybe some of the other bigger news organisations can help. But it's interesting. I mean, the the Australian case here, it is actually 45% owned by News Corporation and they've obviously decided. So it is owned by a big media company that's obviously got its own views and was founded by, by Keith Murdoch. So it's, you know, it's not entirely, you know... Uh, independent in that way. Uh, But I think it's a question of where news organisations as well put their resources. I mean, it's not that all, you know, we've got got somebody who set up their own wire services running for president in in Mike Bloomberg. So, you know, they're not not without their flaws, but the reporters on the ground are doing really good work and that should be, you know, should be backed up. Yeah, I think that there are all kinds of imaginative ways that people can look at this. For example, the BBC now uses part of uh, its uh, resources to support 
local uh, newspapers and shares some of the the um, news stories that it gathers with other local uh, newspapers and so on. And I think that there can be more imaginative ways of looking at it, whether it's necessarily a government that has to step in and support news agencies. But I think the wider problem is that we have a whole generation of people who are, who are coming up who are not prepared to pay for their news. They think they can get it all free through social media without realising that actually establishing the news, especially some of those longer term, longer form investigative reporting, the longer films uh, where you really find out things that really matter, that costs money. And uh, if people are not prepared to pay for it, then I think that is where we get a problem. And that is where you get this rise in fake news without sufficient resources to counter it. Terry Stiasny and Carol Walker, thank you very much. After this, Eurovision season is fast approaching. You are listening to Monaco's House View. Stay tuned. Finally today, the US election isn't the only competition of international significance happening this year. The Eurovision Song Contest touches down in Rotterdam beginning on the 12th of May. Our own Eurovision correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco fills us in on what to expect. I'm a human, not a song. I can make a change and go wherever I want to. Eurovision fans are buzzing as most countries have now submitted their entries for this year's show, currently still going forward from May 12 to May 16 in Rotterdam. There are whispers that Lithuania could be a strong contender with its lick beats and choreography. Think Billie Eilish's catchy bad guy. For the cool crowd, Iceland impressed with the synthy Thing About Things by Dadi Og Gagnamagnu. It's a catchy tune and the retro jumpers the band is wearing could be the fashion trend of the event. Italy is always strong, three top five finishes in the past five years, and are going for a classic ballad by Diodato, Fai Rumore. Ukraine's return to the competition is also welcome with the electro-folk Solovey by Goa. There's also some classic Eurovision fare ranging from the Metallica-esque beats of the Georgian act to a Serbian version of the Pussycat Dolls. Stay tuned for more updates from our M2014 and of course, me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Monaco 24's Eurovision correspondent. Monaco's Eurovision correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. And that's all for today. Monaco's House View was produced by Carlo Terabello and researched by Yolingo Fair and Madeleine Pollard. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monaco on Design. Monaco's House View is back at the same time on Wednesday, that is at 1800 London time, 10 a.m. in Los Angeles. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening and goodbye.